So last week, we started the story of Abraham. At this point in time in the story, he's Abram. God hasn't changed his name yet. And we looked at the first, verse, first nine verses of chapter 12, and here's what we found. We found that they, there's an identified pattern that God starts here and that he carries out throughout the rest of Scripture, and that's that God initiates relationship with us. We see this time and time over and over again throughout the Scriptures that God is always the one that takes the first step towards us. And as he initiates relationship with Abram here in Genesis chapter 12, he brings these really big promises to him. Right? So we saw that he brought this promise of land. Abram is a wanderer at this point in time. He does not have a land, but God says, I'm going to give you this promised land. And he doesn't stop there. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Abram is in his 70s at this point in time and has no children whatsoever. So this is like big promises that seem very out there that don't seem very particularly promising at that point in time for Abram. But these are big, big claims that God is placing before them. And then to go a step further, he says, I'm also going to give you a great name, speaking not just of recognition, but also of reputation. And what we need to recognize is before God approaches Abram at this point in time, he is a pagan. He's an idolater. He worships other gods. And so that would mean that he doesn't have a story of faithfulness to God, a reputation of walking with him, but God is going to give him a reputation that he does not deserve. His name is going to be remembered. His name is recalled on time and time again throughout the scriptures. And it's always out of the kindness and the work that God does in his life. This is what God is promising to Abram if he steps out in faith to go as God calls him to do. And what do we see? Abram picks up all this stuff and he follows God's call to go to a place that is unnamed at that point in time. Great faith, right? Great faith. But we saw last week that that was still a gift in and of itself. Faith in and of itself comes from the goodness of God. And so tonight, we're looking at the next sequence of the story here, right? And here's what I would, I would imagine. If you've never read the story of Abram, you would, this story and the way it goes is not particularly how you would expect the next sequence of the story to go, right? And so I, I just want us to work through this um, and to wrestle with some of our personal expectations because I think our expectations, what we read into the story, if you were to come to it as if you hadn't read it, our expectations speak a lot to what our expectations for our relationship with God look like here and now. All right. And so I want to just speak into it. I want us to lean into it. I want to wrestle with it. And hopefully, by the end of this, we'll leave with just some hope that's filled inside of our hearts, all right? So here's what I want to do. I just want to work through the story. There's three different sections that I want us to look at this in. As we look through those three different sections, I want us to make three observations about what we see in this passage for our own personal lives, and then I'll bring it to close by asking us a few questions, leaving you with questions that you can walk with to wrestle in your own life, all right? So let's start with the first section, all right? It's I, again, I started with like five words last week. I'm not going to be too far off from that this week. So verse 10, here's what it says. I'm going to read the passage, then make some observations, and then we'll keep moving forward. So here's what it says. Verse 10. There was a famine in the land. All right? So like I said, not going to go too far here. Stop there with me. All right? So imagine you're Abram, Okay? Imagine you're Abram. God's given you these big promises. He's told you to go 
in faith and obedience, you pick up all of your stuff, you go and you worship God. He set up these places, these altars of worship. You go where he has called you to go. And then the very next story you get is that famine has hit the land, right? This is not what you would expect if we were reading this for the very first time. What do you expect? You expect that God is gonna step in Abram has followed in faith and obedience to where God has called him to go. The next thing that you would expect to see is that God is bringing about to fruition these promises that he's given to Abraham, but that's not what happens here. And so here's, you don't see this in the text, but here's Josh coming out in this passage, right? If I'm Abram, here's the question that I have. God, what are you doing, right? God, you gave me these big promises in the very first nine verses here, where are they? What are you doing? I did not expect to pick up and go and follow and that famine would hit the land. And here's why I think this is really important. I think this is really helpful for us because I think this speaks into our experience in following and walking with Jesus in this life. All right. Here's how. All right. When we trust Christ, our expectation is that life will become better and easier. All right, so you may not have verbally said that, but I guarantee you, you've either thought it in your head or you experienced it in your heart. Because here's what we see, all right? When we come to faith in Jesus, we're told what a difference it will make in following Jesus in our life, all right? We're told that it's gonna give us forgiveness of sins, that it'll give us peace of our conscience. It gives us a relationship with God. It gives us power and wisdom to overcome previous patterns of sin in our life. And you could keep going on with the benefits that come with following with Jesus. This is all that's told to us when we're talk, when the gospel's brought to us and the kindness and the goodness of God that comes to us through Jesus Christ. These are the benefits that are placed before us. And so the assumption with all these great benefits of following Jesus would be a better and easier life. But then reality sets in, doesn't it? Reality sets in, and much like Abram, we experience famines, don't we? We experience relational hurt. You get hurt by the people that you would never have thought would turn their back on you or stab you in the back in the way that they did. These deep, residing hurts and wounds take place in your heart and you're left wondering like, God, what are you doing? You also do this with like financial famine. You follow Jesus and man, you are trying to do your best to be faithful with your finances. A lot of us in this room are giving sacrificially of those finances for the work of God to take place, the advancement of his kingdom here. But then man, everything in your house starts to break, right? Everything starts to break. Your car breaks down. You have all these, things, these problems that arise in your home. And then things get really tight. And you're like, how am I going to make it? And you're left with the question, God, what are you doing? This isn't what I thought following you would be like. I didn't expect this is what life was going to be like in following you. You also experience physical hardship, right? Like there's disease and sickness that you encounter. Sometimes it's very chronic and it doesn't go away and it steps into your life, not before you come into relationship with Jesus, but after relationship with, with Jesus. And you're just left with this sense of confusion. Like these are all different types of famines that come up in our life. And it leaves us with the same question that Abram likely had as famine sets in in the land. God, what are you doing? So the question 
is, what is God doing, right? God, what are you doing? Why, why is this the way that you act in our life? Well, the Bible often characterizes these famines in the scriptures as trials or tests, all right? Trials and tests are times intended to challenge or stretch our faith. And God brings the famine upon Abram as a test of his faith and obedience. And look, it's intended for his good. It's intended for his good. This is what I want us to see, all right? God does the same for us in the famines that he brings in our life. Here's his desire, all right? Here's his desire when he brings these trials and these tests and these famines. It's intended to grow our faith, all right? So there's this former thinker. Um, his name is Dallas Willard. And he says there's three ways that God typically works to change us, all right? And I, I agree with these, all right? So here's the three. He says, one, it's the action of the Holy Spirit. So when you place faith in Jesus, you get the gift of the Holy Spirit. God comes and takes permanent residence in your life. And whenever that happens, it's almost like there's this divine intervention that takes place in your life. The Holy Spirit maybe awakens the eyes of your heart to sin patterns in your life. And there's an intervention that takes place in your life. And he calls you to turn away and step away from those. So that's one of the ways that God works in our life in order to see us change, the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. The second one is you practice spiritual disciplines. So you do things like prayer and Bible reading and stepping into community with other believers that have also proclaimed faith in Jesus. And as you rub your life against the Bible, as you rub your life against God and prayer, as you rub your life against community, people that place their faith in Jesus, then you begin to see some of these things take fruit in your life as well. We always look at, if you look at relationships, we always become who our friends are. They don't become who we are, right? So there's always this rub that takes place in our life. And so God uses these things in order, these spiritual disciplines, in order to rub us into right, or to right um, living with God. There's this change that takes place in our life. But look, the last one, is periods of testing, periods of testing, these times of struggle. Now, here's the thing about the reality of them, all right? We need all three. You need all three, all right? So here's the way that another pastor, Jerry Bridges, puts it. He compares this period of testing to this insect called the Cecropia moth, all right? I got a picture up here for you. There it is. Look at that bad boy. Man, so here's the thing about a Cecropia moth, all right? So it's big and beautiful, right? So whenever the wings are expanded, it's over seven inches wide in length. That's pretty big for a moth, right? But then you also see like these really bright, beautiful colors too, right? You have the red and the orange and you have all the distinctions that take place with this moth. Now, one of the things that stands about this moth is the way that it exits its cocoon, all right? It's known for this intense struggle in order for it to break out of its cocoon. And so the story goes that there was one time an entomologist I'd practiced that before I got up here. Entomologist who once was watching the struggle that this moth had as it was trying to get out of its cocoon. And it attempted to help by snipping the shell in order for the moth to escape the cocoon a little bit early. And so the moth, he does it. He exits the cocoon, but whenever it exits it, the cocoon, its wings aren't right, all right? So the, the moth comes out, it's finally broken through, the entomologist is watching all this take place, but what he examines is that the wings of this moth are shriveled and weak, all right? 
What he didn't recognize is that the struggle from the cocoon is actually an essential part to the development of the moth's muscle system, all right? By passing the struggle that this moth needed from the exit of the cocoon by getting all the things that it needs to grow the, the wings for it to fully flourish in life, it bypasses all of that. And so it leaves the moth underdeveloped. And so the moth, the story goes, was doomed to crawl in a very abbreviated life. All right? It's the same way with our faith in tests and trials and struggle, all right? If we are left to our own, we are like the entomologist. If you look at those three different ways that we see change and growth take place in our life, if it's left to our own devices, we're fine with the Holy Spirit, right? We're fine with the Holy Spirit coming in and speaking into our life, producing change and growth in our life. We're fine with the spiritual disciplines, we're fine with taking up the Bible, reading the Bible, praying, getting into community. We love relationships and we love rubbing life on life with other people. But when it comes to these periods of testing, these times of struggle, tests, and trials, if it's left to our own devices, we're cutting that out. But God is different from us, thankfully, because he knows what's actually best for us. He doesn't leave us to our own devices, but he actually brings about the things that he knows are what is best in our life. He understands that these tests and struggles are what is actually needed for us to grow in our faith, for us to reach the maturity in faith that God desires in your life he doesn't look at our testings and trials as a means of being angry and mean towards us, but actually bringing to fruit the desire that he has for your life. And that's why the Apostle James, in James 1, 2 through 4, says this. Just listen to this. He says, Consider it a great joy. My brothers and sisters, look, whenever you experience various trials. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Look, tests are coming. All right, this is just the way of walking with Jesus. This is how he produces the results in your life that he longs for you from well before you stepped into relationship with Jesus. God knows that it's through struggle and trials and tests that it's the maturity that's going to be the end result of your faith rather than cutting it out and leaving you under, underdeveloped and not flourishing for the life that he's created you to live. So, if that's the case, we shouldn't have our tendency to be to try to avoid these tests and trials. Whenever we see a time of struggle or something that's going to be challenging, our, our a step shouldn't be to step aside and try to avoid it. That it shouldn't be, we shouldn't go to the other end of the spectrum either where we just we delight in the idea of struggle in this life. And it's like we're trying to look for ways to make our lives harder here, but rather you do endure them. It's kind of like the song that my boys have about the bear hunt. You don't go over it. You don't go under it. You don't go around it, but you have to go through it. That's what life with Jesus looks like when it comes to tests and trials. We don't try to avoid them. 
We don't delight in them, but we rather we go through them because we know the end result is our maturity. We see this in Abram's life, but we also see it in ours. And so the question I think that we have to ask is, are we ready for them? In your life, are you ready for them? We get to look at Abram's life. I feel bad for him, um, but we get to see just how ready he was for this time of testing. We see it in verses 11 through 16. Here's what the story says. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but let you live. Please say you're my sister, so it will go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. So the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. He treated Abram well because of her. And Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. All right, gosh, the Bible is brutally honest, right? So what we see here is poor Abram wasn't ready for the test, and we get all the details of his failure, all right? So think back in chapter 12, verse 3. Here's the promise that is given to Abram, all right? God tells him that he's going to give him the land, that he's going to give him a great nation, he's going to make his name great, and here's what he says in verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, But rather than trust in God, God's promises and provision here, we see Abram takes matter into his own hands. And how does he do it? Abram devises a lie with Sarai. And we'll tell, um, he, he longs to tell them that it's his sister, all right? So here's what Abram's banking on, all right? There's this custom at this point in time. It's called fratriarchy. Fratriarchy? Yep. Yes. If there's no father, uh, at that point in time, this is what this custom did. This custom said, if there's no father, then the brother becomes the primary guardian of his sister. And so Abram is banking on this because here's what it means. One, they have to keep him around, all right? Abram stays alive because any person that is to take Abram would have to now bargain with him in order to take his sister's hand in marriage, all right? At that point in time, They could just get rid of you as a husband. They could kill you. They could get rid of you, and then they could take your wife. But if you are the brother, they have to now take you seriously, and they have to barter with you for your sister's hand in marriage. But it seems to go a step further than this, and that Abram knows that he can actually profit off of his wife, Sarai, in this circumstance. I get this from verse 13. Here's what it says. Please say, you're my sister. Look, so it will go well for me because of you. Now, and my life will be spared on your account. So it seems that he has both his life in, his, in, in mind in making this, uh, devising this lie, but also it seems he knows what he could probably get out of this whole circumstance if the lie goes forward and that Sarai is taken as his sister. He knows that he can gain material possession. So even when Abram fails the test, well, here's what we see. God still uses it for Abram's good. And here's, how we, here's where I'm getting this, right? Here's the first uh, observation I want us to see. The, the tests that we experience in this life, they squeeze us, and then they reveal our hearts. 
These tests, they squeeze us and then they reveal our hearts. The famine is like the hand on a tube of a toothpaste. It squeezes on Abram's life and we see what oozes out. And here's what it is. You see that instead of fear of God, Abram functions in fear of man. He looks at Pharaoh and he sees the power and the wealth and authority that resides with him. And he sets his gaze on who Pharaoh is and glances only at who God is. And he functions out of a posture of a fear of man rather than a fear of God. But secondly, you see a love of possessions over the love of his own wife. Look, he puts Sarai in a really difficult circumstance. He chooses his own life over the life of his wife. You could also make the argument that he loves possessions so much that he's willing to make a gain off of the threat of his own wife, Sarai, here. Like, what a coward, right? Like, if you're a woman and you're a wife, a spouse in here, man, like, you have to be almost offended by the idea of what Abram does here. This is like one of the guys that is spread throughout all of Scripture that's talked about being so faith-filled throughout all the Scriptures. But what do we see here? He's willing to lay down the life of his own wife for his own expense, like for him to gain and profit off of his own wife. What a coward, right? But here's the good news of this. Like, Because of the kindness and goodness of God, this test, it squeezes us, it squeezes Abram, and it reveals what is in his heart. And look, this test that you and I go through, they do the same thing to our life as well. All right, when we fail, which we will, just like Abram does, we can look at him and we can look down on him as much as we want, but we too fail just like he does. And whenever we do fail, look, these tests, We can look back on them and they reveal what really resides in our heart. We can look back on these tests that God allows to happen in our life and we can see what actually truly does reside deep down inside of us. They show us what is true about us, what we would never believe as someone would try to tell us otherwise, all right? So imagine like this, all right? So imagine your friend comes and tells you, hey, you have a love for stuff. Like you love your stuff. It's like this unhealthy love that you have for your stuff. If you have a friend that comes up to you like that, you probably, your first response is the, a defensiveness, isn't it? Like, who do you think you are? Like, look at your own life. Go pull the log out of your own eye. Don't try to take the speck out of my own eye. But there's a way that experiences bring to light things that we can never see without them, right? There's a way that tests and trials bring awareness to our life, things that reside deep down in our own hearts that we're unaware of, that if it weren't for those tests and trials, we would never see without them, all right? So here's like a silly instance, all right? So last year, um, I lost my AirPods, all right? So Cherish and I, we were at this uh, thing with a partner church here in town, and uh, we, had to have, we had our kids there. Um, we didn't have childcare at that point in time. And so uh, for one of the dinners, we had to have our kids that were there. And they were just kind of running crazy. All right, they're running crazy. And so we're in this back room by ourselves trying to feed our children. There's another family that comes in. Things are just kind of wacky and chaotic. And so I have my AirPods with me. And somehow I end up putting them in a lunch pail. And then we zip it up. We bring it back home. And I completely forgot where I placed them, all right? 
And to say that I was like distraught about it would be an understatement, all right? Like I, stupid AirPods, all right? Stupid AirPods. But the loss of them, it's like I had no idea how attached I was to these stinking little things that I put in my ear. Like any time that I would go on a drive, like driving to or from, my two-minute drive from work, all right? My two-minute drive, I put my AirPods in and I listen to podcasts or I listen to music. As I'm traveling to and from meetings, I throw those bad boys in. I'm out doing yard work. I go for a run. I throw those bad boys in. My life is severely attached to these AirPods. And any time over that course of two weeks that I get into my car or I go for a run or I'm going to a meeting, I reach for these stinking AirPods and I realize just how attached they are to my life. Look, it wasn't because of, if you would have come and told me, hey, Josh, you have like this unhealthy attachment to your AirPods, I'd be like, you're an idiot, right? Like, go talk to somebody else. But man, like the the experience of it opened the awareness of my own life to just how attached I was to these little white pods that I stick inside my ears. And look, it's the same way with other bigger things that take place in your life. There are things that reside in your heart, attachments, loves, desires, longings, and dreams that reside deep in your own heart that you are completely oblivious to, look, until trials and tests come and they threaten those particular things in your life. So here's, here's what we need to have. Like, we need to pray and ask God for the eyes to see. We need to pray and ask to God that we would have eyes to see what these particular issues are in our life. There's times where you've had tests or trials or famines in your life that God is trying to reveal what is going on inside of your heart. But look, we are so fixated on our own selves and our own life that we fail to see it. And here's what our response is. Our response is that we look at these tests and these trials and these famines and we blame God as if he's turned his back on us. We look at our circumstances and we view God's love as circumstantial and we look at what's happening in our life and we're like, I thought God loved me. I thought God was on my side. I thought God was permanently attached to me. I thought he only wanted what was for my good. And we confuse a trial and a test for a temptation because there's a difference. The test and the trial is always to produce faithfulness in your life. But what we see is that Satan is the one that tempts us and the result of a temptation is always for faithlessness. We have to see the war that's taking place for our souls. Your soul is so valuable that you both have God who's come and won a soul for you, but you also have Satan who's also trying to bring your soul down to death. And what you see in the difference between the two is the two different sides of the war that's taking place for your own heart. God is bringing about tests and trials so that you can grow in faithfulness, that you can grow in character, so that you can grow in maturity. And he wants you to experience the fullness of the relationship that you have with God, bringing about Christ's likeness in your life 
through these different struggles that he brings in your life. That's the desire. It's not for your hurt or your pain or your lack of experiencing his goodness. It's so that you can experience the full breadth of what he wants to produce in your life. It's Satan that's actually doing the other. And because we are so blind, we get the two confused. So the question like you got to wrestle with is like, man, what are the difficulties? What are the tests? What are the trials that have taken place in my life that, man, I haven't seen what God wanted to reveal in my life? And whenever we pray, the goodness of our God is that he promises us that when we pray that he gives us what we ask for when it aligns with his will. And look, it is his will that you become more like Christ. So the question is like, what have I missed? God, would you open the eyes of my heart to see what you were wanting to reveal in my heart that I was so dense to see myself? Now, as we're in this and we wrestle with like, okay, um, Abram fails. I know that I fail. How does God respond to our failing? What is his response to us? Man, we see this big act of faith in Abram's life, and then we see this failing and this testing. What does God do? How does he respond to Abram? How does he respond to me, right? Like, big questions. Well, we see how at least God responds to Abram in verses 17 through 20, and I believe it is indicative of, of the way that he responds to us too. Here's what he says in verse 17 through 20. But the Lord struck Pharaoh... And his household was severe plagues because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my own wife? Now here's your wife. Take her and go. And then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Look, how does God respond to Abram in the midst of his failing in this test and trial that God allows him to go through, you see two ways. God providentially intervenes. What does he do? He stops Pharaoh through a string of plagues in the taking Sarai as his own wife before he can do something that would put uh, the promises of God at threat here. God intervenes. He interrupts what's taking place here. And then the second thing is you see that God trumps lies with truth. And through these plagues, there's some awareness that God brings about in Pharaoh's life. And he learns that Sarai is Abram's wife. And then he sends them away. God divinely intervenes here in Abram's life. Look, here's what we see. God is faithful to Abram even when Abram is not faithful to God. That's what we see here. And look, we see this all throughout the Bible. You see this all throughout the Bible, right? You see other instances where Abram fails again. We're going to see this is actually like the first of many accounts where this happens in Abram's life. We see Moses. What the Bible tells us, Moses is the most humble man that has ever walked the faiths of the earth apart from Jesus. And look, he too fails. David, the prized king of Israel, he fails all of Israel fails. Look, you and I experience failure in our own life. And so here's the question. How can God be so faithful to us when we are so unfaithful to him? We are riddled with fear. 
God, I've been unfaithful to you once again. How are you going to respond to me as if God's kindness and goodness is going to run run out on us? And here's the promise and the hope that we have. This is a beautiful truth about the kindness of God's grace in your life. 2 Timothy 2.13 says this, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Look, for he cannot deny himself. What in the world does all this mean? Here's what this means. Saving faith is not grounded in the strength of your faith, but in the object of your faith. That's what's being told to us here. And this is a beautiful truth that we must cling to in this life. The object of our faith is Jesus. He is the one that we have placed all of our hope, and he's our assurance that salvation is ours. And look, Jesus is so faithful, y'all. Jesus is so faithful. Think about his life. All right, think about his life. He's faithful in coming and responding to the God, the call of the Father to come into this world. Jesus comes in, he descends from his place that he deserves in heaven and clothes himself in humility with human flesh. And then what does he do? He walks this life and look, he goes into the the trials and the testings that take place in the wilderness. And what happens? He doesn't give in to a single one of them. These trials and temptations don't come until he's at his weakest point, y'all. After 40 days and 40 nights of fasting in the wilderness, Jesus is tempted by Satan. He does not give in. But look, it goes further than that, all right? Jesus, as he continues to walk faithfully with God throughout his life and ministry, what happens on the night of his death? Jesus is in the garden, and what is he praying? God, would you please pass this cup from me? There's wrestling, there's struggle that's going on in his heart. But what does he say? Not my will, but your will be done, God. And look, the struggle doesn't end there. Jesus on the cross, as he's dying, he's hanging on the cross for you and me. What is his proclamation on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Struggle, worry, doubt. What are you doing, God? But what does he say at the end of it? Into your hands do I cast my spirit, right? Look, Jesus, who is so faithful for us, who walks faithfully throughout all of life, who stands and stays on the cross in our place, is the object of our faith. So here's what it means. It does not mean that your faith resides on instances of faith throughout all the course of life, hoping that the scale turns in your favor. No, the object of your faith is Jesus, which means that you are not relying on your instances of faith, but the life of faith that Jesus has lived for you. That's where your hope resides. That's what you're hanging your whole soul on for all of eternity is the object of your faith, which is Jesus. And here's what this means, all right? Last observation that we take from this passage. Look, these tests, they transform in the light of who the object of our faith is because they are no longer a recall of our faithlessness, but they are now a recalling of God's faithfulness to us. 
Anytime that you look back on the tests and trials, yes, we want to see with eyes what God's trying to reveal in our hearts. But as we look back on these tests and trials, because of who the object of our faith is, it transforms the way that we look at these tests and trials. That is no longer a reminder that I have been faithless in this life, but it's a recall of how faithful God has been in your life. All right, so here's how God's been kind of teasing this out in my own personal life, all right? If I could give like a personal test, uh, uh, an image to the personal testing that I've experienced in the last like few years here, it would be the AC unit in my house, all right? So um, like there's been seasons of testing each year that we've lived here, um, but it always seems to culminate in problems with our AC in our house, all right? So I'll, give, I'll just give you a brief synopsis of the last three summers for us, all right? So the summer of 2021, um, there's struggle that's going on here to get our church off the ground, all right? I won't go into the full details of that, but some of you lived through that and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, we felt how challenging it was to get a church up off the ground in the middle of a pandemic. It was so hard. I mean, mass mandates, people that weren't wanting to like, have any kind of relationship with us whatsoever, trying to keep us at arm's length away. I endured um, some personal loss that felt really significant in my life that summer. Um, just still feel the lingering results of that. Um, lost my grandmother, and she was just kind of like the matriarch of our family, and uh, just still deal with the hardness of losing someone so close to me. And look, all this kind of, there's other things that took place, but all of it kind of culminated in June of that summer, whenever our AC unit went out for an entire month, all right? A whole entire month in the month of June, our AC is out and it is burning hot, right? So here's how that summer, like I remember how it ends. I was in Nashville for a conference and I'm on the phone with this repairman that's supposed to be coming to our house to fix the AC. And I'm on the phone with him, and he's telling us all the things that we've done wrong, that he can't repair the AC unit. And I'm just weeping over the phone in the back of this conference room. Like, I have people that are looking at me like, what is going on with this crazy dude? And I'm like crying over an AC unit, right? Like, all of this culminates in this AC unit going out on us. And so, like, that's where a lot of this starts, right? So you fast forward to the spring of 2022. There's more church struggles that are going on. I won't, like, bore you with all of that. Um, additional hardships in our home, especially with, like, the boys in their school and just some relational things that's going on there that just weighs heavy on you as a parent. And so experiencing all of that. And then right before Easter, which kind of have some like PTSD when it comes to Easter now because of some of these events, um, it all peaks with our AC unit freezing. All right. And so here's what, here's my response. All right. I was so gripped by fear and anxiety over our AC unit and all the other things that have been going on in our life, like I thought I was having a heart attack, like legitimately thought I was having a heart attack. Like my chest hurt, um, my, like my wife, Cherish, I haven't really told anybody this, so Cherish is the only one that knows this. Um, I went to the hospital, like, and went to the ER room and was checked out because I thought I was legitimately having a heart attack because of all of this that was going on. I was so gripped by fear of what was going on with the AC unit, but all the other instances in life. Look, what, I, what God was revealing in my heart at this point in time is I wanted so much control. I wanted to have a 
locked down grip on the things that were taking place in my life. I wanted provision where nothing, the discomforts of this world could not attack what was going on in my personal life. Like I wanted all of these things to take place where there was no hardship. I had full control that I didn't have to worry about what God was doing in order to bring about my desires and dreams in this world. And all of it just kind of culminates with the freezing of our AC unit. And so fast forward to spring of 2023, just a few months ago, all right? Again, um, there's continued church stuff. <laughs> like Easter, like I said, has just kind of brought some PTSD when it comes to like every Easter coming out. It seems like always something's going to go wrong. And then more parenting struggles, things that are taking place in the boys' school, things just hardships, things breaking in our own house. And it's capped off with, again, a broken AC unit. Again. Like, here's what happens this time. They come out, and the coil has a crack in it. And so there is, uh, like, it can't, the air can't get cold anymore. Like, all of, like, the freezing has, like, left the system, and so they have to replace it. They tell us $13,000. $13,000. Look, if it was summer of 2021, if it was the spring of 2022, I may have died. <laughs> Like legitimately, it felt like it, what was a panic attack in 2022 may have full been a heart failure here in the spring of 2023. But you know what the response that I had? Through the course of the last three years, these trials and testings, God has been doing a work on my own heart. Like he's revealed to me, like some of these idols that are in my heart, me wanting to have grip and control and authority, the longings and desires and dreams that I have, all of these things he's revealed to me. And I think by the grace of God, he's loosened my grip on some of these things. And so what happens in 2023 is Cherish and I are sitting at a table. Lucas comes in for a staff meeting in our house and he's like, what did I just walk into? But you know what happens? Cherish and I look at each other and we think back on the last few years and we say, you know what? God's been faithful to us and he's going to be faithful to us again. Now, that doesn't mean that there weren't times where like my heart got really scared. Like there's like very imperfect progress that God has brought about in my life. But I can stand here and say that by looking at all the testings and struggle and trials that I've endured the last three years, that I can stand here before you and say I've been able to look back. He's revealed things on my life, revealed at, like patterns of my own heart. And because of all this, because I've seen the faithfulness that God has expressed towards me, not just the last three years, but a whole lifetime full of faithfulness, that I am able now to look at all of this and work through the continued testings and trials that God brings in my life with greater progress. Not perfection, but greater progress. These tests revealed what was in my heart they reminded me of God's faithfulness and they resulted in my growth. So look, here's what I want us, to, want us to see, all right? Just landing the plane, all right? We can look at the story of Abram and we can look at our own life and we can see the pattern that plays out in walking in relationship with Jesus. Tests are coming. Tests are coming. You're going to have to endure seasons of struggle in this life. It's how God brings about change in your life. So the question is, are you ready? 
Are you ready? What are you doing to cultivate a heart by looking back on patterns of testing and trials in your life that's preparing your heart now to go through those seasons of struggle moving forward? Second, these tests reveal your heart. So what do I need to see? What have I been blind to in previous times of testing and struggle in my life that I need to see now so that God can loosen my grip on those things in life presently and grow my grip on him? What does it look like for me to transfer that? And then lastly, tests remind you of God's faithfulness. Ask the question, where has God been faithful to me? Where has he been faithful Where have I grown? What's the progress, imperfect progress that God has produced in my life as a bout of going through seasons of testings and trials in this life? Look, it's going to happen because it's the way that he brings about growth and maturity in your life. Jerry Bridges, he closes it all out with this, um, summarizes it well. He says, God does not delight in our sufferings our trials, our temptations. He brings only that which is necessary, but he does not shrink from what, which will, that which will help us grow. That is, that is tests and trials and struggles. You have a God who loves you so dearly that he's willing to let you go through hardships to bring out the fruition of maturity in life so that you can walk in Christ-likeness. Let's pray.